So last time we finished up talking about um, talking about the attributes of God and the will of God, and um, and there was a sermon that might have been last Sunday where I where I referred to our our Thursday evening doctrine class where we talked about um, the attributes of God, and that really you know the attributes of God like who God is and what God does are are one and the same. Um, and that wherever he is, he is present with all of his gifts and all of his power. Um, I think that was, that was one of the earlier notes that he had, that he had said in the book. Um, so tonight we're picking up in chapter six, talking about God's creating activity. This would be page 125 in your text, uh, textbook, but we should at the very least, um, see if there were any lingering questions about the will of God. Um, and we talked a little bit about, um, the idea of God's plan for your life and that, you know, the, that, that's a lot easier to, to see and understand, um, kind of in hindsight, um, and going forward, it, it gives us the, the confidence to say, you know, even if I have two very good and godly decisions, I can make either of these two decisions and God is going to bless it. Um, and in, instead of where some people, um, some people go a little bit too far and, and start fretting about, you know, what is God's plan for my life and what is, what is the one that God wants me to do rather than say, here are two good choices and we choose one. Um, we'll talk about that a lot more with, well, hopefully a little bit more depth. Um, this next summer, we'll have a, a sermon series on vocation, um, along with a relatively new book that one of the pastors in our, our church body had written. I think it's called vocation. <laughs> so any questions about the, the will of God, um, especially from last time, before we get into the creating work of God? Seeing none. <clears throat> then we get into the next chapter, talk about God's creating activity. And the, the Genesis account um, from Genesis chapter 1. There's a, there's a nice little note there. Regarding God's creating the universe, proofs and arguments from geology and archaeology may all be very interesting and sometimes worthwhile, but our faith does not rest on anything other than the clear word of God. Why? <laughs> and why, I mean, why does that matter? And then number two, why does he say that before we start talking about uh, talking about God's creating activity? This uh, the, that quote just after it says the creation account at the top of um, top of your page, where it says that you know talking about proofs, basically that whole avenue of apologetics may be interesting, but is of limited value. Yeah, why why does he why does he say that? And um and <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And that's where, um, that's where like Hebrews chapter 11 starts by faith. We understand that the world was formed at God's command. Um, and, and this, this whole discussion of apologetics and like the answers in Genesis, uh, like the creation museum and the ark, I, I think they're fantastic. Um, 
in insofar as they they show in a scientific way that the scriptural account is trustworthy, but it's still of secondary importance as compared to the, the account of scripture itself. Um, and I think the other place where it comes in is that when we talk about when we talk about this, that you can't really separate you know creation as as if it's in its own little box and then creation either you know flip a coin whether you believe creation or evolution but it's just genesis one and don't worry about the rest um because two major ways in which the whole topic of creation impacts the rest of the bible is number one um the the problem of death that if there is no creation, then there's no then there's no explanation for death. Um, that the that death is the pay, the just payment for sin. Um, so an evolutionary mindset says that death serves to progress or advance the species. Um, and then secondly, that Jesus himself refers to creation in Matthew chapter nineteen when he's talking with the uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Um, and, and, or maybe it's the Pharisees, but whoever he is, Matthew chapter 19, um, he says, don't you remember that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And so Jesus himself treats Genesis one as historical fact. And if somebody were to try to discount Genesis one, um, then they end up calling Jesus a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, then he sinned and then he can't be my savior. Um, so it is part and parcel of, of the whole fabric of scripture. And looking at Genesis 1, you can see the rest of what we had talked about previously, about the attributes of God and the characteristics of God. Anything else? Any other comments about um, creation or the role of faith? Yeah. Just about the archaeology being sometimes worthwhile. Um, could it possibly be a tool that maybe sometimes does lead someone to faith? it's it's possible um it's possible that with the result that they maybe ask more questions um at the same time you know the way the way science works is that that everything is a theory that uh, until <laughs> it's kind of funny when you, when when you talk with somebody who has like done science for for a long time like um one of our one of our professors had spent a number of years at in antarctica and basically writing a mathematical equation to explain how the wind forms different you know snow dunes or something like that and um and he said he taught us a little bit about the history of science in that, you know, one of the things was if you look at the stars before, when, when they had this idea that the earth was at the center of the universe, then they just had this elaborate system of, of circles that all of these other stars and planets would orbit in. And the crazy thing is that it makes sense and that it actually works. Um, if you put the earth at the center and just say everything is kind of running out basically on its own set of gears, um, and it's not until you actually prove that the sun is at the center, then you're like, oh, well, we have to make up, have another solution that, that also makes sense. Um, and so with, with dealing with new information that might be there from archaeology, um, the fantastic book on the topic is um, called On the Nature of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N. And what he says is that basically, and this is the same, no matter what profession you get into, um, for the most part, that basically all the new scientific discoveries are made by younger scientists who haven't made a name for themselves yet, and who don't have a vested interest in maintaining the, the scientific structure as it stands. And, and so if somebody comes across, you know, a different, interesting bit of archaeology, um, like out in South Dakota, out, you know, middle of nowhere in South Dakota, I guess that's redundant, right? Uh, middle of nowhere, South Dakota, there's some apparent evidence for, um, for the specific type of rain after an asteroid hit. And, and so they're saying, all we have to do is just fit that into our understanding of this meteor taking out, taking out the dinosaurs and it all fits. Um, and so I guess what, what I'm saying is, is it, is it possible that it would lead somebody to ask more questions? Definitely. Um, to come to faith, um, maybe if they have a, have a Christian in their life or they encounter this for the first time and say, now, now it all makes sense. 
Um, at the same time, there is a, there's a strong bias to, um, to keep believing what I, you know, maybe paid $200,000, $400,000 for an education in, and now I've built up a 20 year career in. Um, and that was kind of one of the experiences of our prospects back in Mississauga, where she was, you know, loved the idea of um, Christians and, and the ethics of Christianity, and that this Jesus came to, to, you know, die for sin and give us new life. But she was, yeah, um, about 15 years into a career as a, as a geologist or something dealing with rocks, and, uh, and just couldn't get past that. She was like, well, if I believe what your Bible says, then everything that I've learned is wrong. And in good conscience, I would have to find a new career. And I'm ready, you know, <laughs> I'm ready here. And uh, she ended up walking away. Um, yeah. So there, there is a lot of like residual um, inertia, I guess, to overcome. Although it's, it's not... Un it, it does happen that people encounter some of this stuff. And that's Ken Ham's big point is, um, is like the slogan for his organization um, down in Cincinnati and Williams, Williamsburg, Williamstown is prepared to believe because his apologetic approach is that if I just give you the facts, then I convince you, then you will make your decision to believe because it's the only rational decision left. And that's where like answers in Genesis goes off the rails. Um, but the, the content of, you know, the scientific content or this, you know, fantastic, fantastically huge boat. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's pretty worthwhile. Sorry. I, I got this funny habit. I just realized this like last week that I'll, I'll start talking. And then eight minutes later, I'm like, did that? It? <laughs> oh yeah. We're going back to this. All right. Uh, talking about the days of creation. Uh, from Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, um, it is evident that God is a number of things. Maybe I didn't. All right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Loving and caring. Um, that is that is also powerful and orderly. Um, and yeah, and that, that it pleased him to, to create. Um, and so God exhibits emotion. Um, and he also, he also has some degree of you know, appreciation for what is beautiful. Like God created a world that is beautiful as well as orderly. It wasn't just, wasn't just a machine, but you know, flowers look pretty or smell nice. And some of them do both <laughs> um, or birds and just the variety of birds and fishes that are fish that are in the world, um, that there's a bit of beauty to that also. Um, and then the, the last one would probably be that God is a God who speaks, um, which which touches on those attributes of God that he is um, that he's that he's a person that he's not this impersonal force um, and so when you talk about God as a person obviously we we don't refer to the three the three people of the Trinity we three refer to the three persons of the Trinity um, and so when to define a person it's just that which is in itself um, and so you walked here, you, you have your own identity, your own personhood. Um, God has his own personhood as well. How about um, below the lines there on, on your worksheet or your reading guide, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> What's the difference between raw evolutionary theory and a theistic evolutionary theory? And how do you respond to each? And how would it be different for each? Uh, theistic. In that one, the God started the process, directed it to a limited extent, but then nature unfolds. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. And so basically, raw evolutionary theory, um, or you know, we could also use the term atheistic, doesn't have God in the equation at all. 
uh, theistic evolutionary theory it says that God started it. And, um, and then at some point he took his hands off and just let the watch keep running um, or let the world just do its thing. Well, how, what about how do you, re, how do you respond to each? <laughs> yeah, you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> I would have to like, I would have to practice that in order to be able to pull it off the way that you can. <laughs> <I think. laughs> hey, it's good. No, no, I think that's fantastic. Um, and, and to, to be able to, to follow it up and say, because what you're, what you're doing is basically this argument from order or, or looking at the order that is here and the beauty that is here and not just and, and, but you've wrapped in like a, a lot of different things. Like there's a purpose for life and there's, um, you know, like the physicists and the biologists apparently don't talk to each other. Like in physics, they have this idea called entropy, that things just kind of break down over time. And the biologist is like, well, things get better over time because natural selection. And, um, and, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's illogical. I know, because every time you take their thoughts and their ideas, and look, let's, just, let's just take your, I would agree that there that there is limited value in um, in like this historical approach to science because you're they're de they're calling it science but they're, what they're really saying is here's the history of the world and the only purpose to that is to tell us today that the sky is falling um, but there isn't much predictive value beyond beyond that other than to say well the sun's going to burn out in a million years anyway so we're all going to die of, of heat death at some point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of like that, but not. <laughs> and so when you're dealing with um, raw evolutionary theory versus theistic, I think the other thing there is um, when you're dealing with a theistic version, you are dealing with somebody who at least accepts the idea of, of God and the existence of God. Um, somebody who believes in this raw evolutionary theory, um, atheistic evolutionary theory, they whether that's their intent or not, they have cut God out of the equation. Um, and so how do you deal with both of them? With a theistic one, you, you know, maybe start by, by seeing where exactly they stand on the rest of the Bible, but it's fairly quickly that you get to talking about Jesus, um, talking about sin with uh, the atheistic evolutionary um, idea. 
I think you, you also have the same, you, you have a common starting point, at least between the two of the human conscience, um, because the human conscience still dreads the idea of death, even though the atheistic evolutionist would want to dress death up as a good thing. Um, good thing for the, the group as a whole. Um, the conscience still fears the idea of death and doesn't like it. Um, while at the same time, it is, it is completely illogical and it's, and it's offensive to the, the pride of the sinful flesh um, to think that I who live a, you know, a moral life get the same, um, same conclusion to my life as the worst dictator in the world, which is kind of where you end up that if, if somebody believes that this world is all that there is, because, you know, when we talk about evolutionary theory, you have to, at some point, if you're talking about the beginning, you have to also talk about the end. And if, um, and if, whether you can start with the beginning or start with the end, you do at some point talk about death. And if there is no such thing as a heaven or a hell, um, then, or if there's no such thing as a hell, then you and I get the exact same reward in the afterlife as Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot. And that is like, but he's a killer and I'm not. And our, our human heart says that shouldn't, it, it's not supposed to be like that, that our conscience or our natural knowledge of God has this inborn sense of justice um, that, that could also be, you know, once you kind of talk your way around to it, um, could also be another starting point. Um, because at some, but at some point you have to, you have to conclude with, well, God has standards and we fall short. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Is just as worthy or is able to be welcomed into heaven just as I am because right? Totally. Totally. And so yeah, that, that's a good point. That when we talk about um like that that appeal to fairness, um that you and I, that we by nature don't believe we deserve the same end as somebody who is a, you know, a criminal of the worst sort. Um, that, that is helpful for, for talking about the reality of God's law. But when we get to moving on to the gospel and talking about the reality of the gospel and what that means for my life and yours, um, the gospel will always be unfair, irrational, and illogical. <laughs> um, or, you know, above, above our human reason and above our logic. Um, because, you know, the most irrational thing of all isn't, isn't that, you know, that this or that serial killer apparently became a Christian before he died. Um, but the most irrational thing of all is that the son of God took on the sins of not only him, but the sin of the whole world. <laughs> yeah. The thief or the uh, criminal next to him, yeah. Because that phrase right there throws purgatory and all that other stuff right up. Totally. Right. So I would have a lot of comfort just in that little verse. Yeah. And that when Jesus says today, he's, it's like a double comfort um, because this, this criminal isn't going to languish on the cr cross for three or four more days, but he's going to be dead before sundown. And when he dies, um, he will be welcomed into heaven um, that, that same moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that's that that does tie in with the the main theme of the book of Luke is um, is that Jesus came as a savior for all people. Um, Luke includes the most healings and other events of people who are outside of the uh, outside of the nation of Israel. Um, so next time you read Luke, if that jumps out or as a memory hook. Uh, what about how about the next one? Professor Deutschlander makes an interesting point. For the attentive reader of the New Testament, the creation reflects the glory of God in a very special way. That's page 131. <laughs> All right. Uh, for the attentive reader of the New Testament. I thought it was a page 131. Yeah. Oh, this is the, uh, sorry, it's the, the first line of the bottom of page 130, the last, last paragraph. All right, go ahead, Crystals. Excellent. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah, that's well said. Yeah. So that, that part, uh, bottom of page one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so there's, um, you know, the, the part that, that Crystal found at the bottom of 130, um, that he holds up the visible and natural world as a mirror of invisible spiritual truths, um, talking about the parables, talking about that we see, that we see God's goodness reflected in, in his, his, you know, his joy in creating something beautiful. Um, and that not only do, does God use the physical to reflect the, the spiritual, but then the spiritual is echoed in the physical. Um, and so when we talk about baptism, for instance, that without, without the word of God, baptism is just plain water. But with the word of God, it is uh, a gracious water of life that washes away sin. And so in baptism, um, you know, without the word of God, it's just like washing your hands. And with the word of God, it's, it, sin is washed away. Um, I think that was one, one of his examples. And the example of, um, you know, like the leaves, as they as they kind of go through their stage before before the winter time comes that they do become more beautiful um even as they even as they pass away <laughs> then we get into the providence of god providence um i don't know if we we have exactly defined that um <laughs> The providence of God is kind of this larger umbrella that includes a number of topics, um, including preservation and God's concurrence um, would be the, the two major ones. And then eventually we'll, this might be after Christmas, when we get to um, the topic of necessity and contingent um, in history, um, like the necessity of something happening versus something happening because something else had happened previously. And so the providence of God is, is just how God continues to provide for all of his creation. Um, just, just very generally And that providence, um, it includes, it includes providing for physical creation that God clothes the lilies of the field and, and feeds the birds of the air. Um, and it, it includes God holding the stars in their places um, and making sure that all of creation operates according to the, the laws that he designed. Um, and, and God's providence um, also applies in a general way over all people, 
that God sends the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous, that is the believer and the unbeliever, um, and God's providence in a special way over Christians, um, where, you know, that, that promise from like that we've talked about previously, that God works all things for the good of those who love him and that, and that, you know, the eyes of all look to you, O Lord. <laughs> um, like Psalm 103 and 104 would be kind of a good example for talking about God's providence. Um, Psalm 103 talks especially about all the spiritual blessings of God. And, you know, you just read through that Psalm and it's, it, there'll be a ton of familiar verses to you um, because we use them in all sorts of contexts. And then the companion is Psalm 104, which talks about how God provides for all the animals and creatures of the world. Um, so when you talk about God's providence, um, there's also there's also a particular providence over His over His church, uh, where Christ, you know, God carries out His providence by having appointed Christ as the head of the church, and He has the specific task of caring for that church. Um, and then we could also talk about God's providence as being carried out in natural ways. Um, such as through the weather um, to make, you know, the grass, the rain fall down. And so that grass grows and cattle can eat it um, as well as supernatural ways. Um, <laughs> how, however broadly you define that, um, but supernatural ways such as miracles or, or angels, um, because then there's, there's kind of that middle ground of things that we call mirac miracles or miraculous happenings. Um, but they are just so commonplace that we just think of them as natural, you know, like the sun rising every day or, you know, your heart beating on its own without having to think about it or like the birth of a child. Um, we, we say they are astonishing and, and we call them miracles, um, even though they're still part of God's natural providence, um, God caring for his creation through the natural order that he was create that he has created. And I think that that gets us down to the distinction between his natural providence and his supernatural providence, where supernatural providence um, goes above, beyond, or around the, the natural order that he has uh, set up. Um, and so that would be like the miracles of Jesus, um, miracles during the time of Elijah and Elisha, like raising somebody from the dead. Um, that would also include sending angels and, you know, whether those angels are seen and perceived or not. Um, that the angel as an angelic being um, is sent specifically to, to serve, you know, a believer in a particular case. Those are the kind of the major categories of providence before we, before we get into, uh, get into the rest of this. Um, under the providence of God, there were a couple, a couple quotations there. Uh, let's let nature take its course, or let's pray that nature doesn't pay us back for a mild winter with a chilly spring. Nature is pleased with simplicity, and nature is no dummy. Thank you, Isaac Newton. By discovering nature, you discover yourself. <laughs> nature, time, and patience are the three great physicians. What do you think? We won't spend too much time on those, but yeah. God created nature yeah yeah that, i mean that's that's number one that nature doesn't nature doesn't control itself um and that nature is is um you know controlled by god and set up not as the the prime the the pinnacle but as it's a fellow creation by god um that you know nature can be very helpful for people um, but it is still something that is created by God to be, to be good. Yeah. Or Crystal. Yeah, and I think that, that that's a good example um, that often substituting in that name, that word nature in place of God. Uh, Crystal. Yeah, 
the answer is they will. A lot of times, speaking is always in my heart, in my mind. for that distinction is um, that we see nature as part of the natural knowledge of God and that the believer sees God's work in nature um, where the unbeliever doesn't. Um, and that, but then together with that, that nature itself also groans under the, the burden of sin. Um, and so the destruction of nature or the dysfunction that we see in nature isn't just because of man's interference in nature or our overproduction of um, you know, microplastics or whatever the, the, the worst thing that is today is. Um, but rather, I mean, <laughs> man certainly can mess up nature on his own. Um, but also nature is dysfunctional because of its corruption by sin. Um, and so, you know, at the same time, we can say that, that if you grow plants in nature, that they should grow to be healthy and they, they should, um, you know, make sure that we grow, you know, healthy, healthy animals or healthy bodies ourselves. Um, and that our bodies ought to be able to, you know, fix itself so that even if Adam and Eve had had cancer, for instance, then maybe it would only have been as bad as the common cold. Um, but we don't want to, we also don't forget that, um, that even our bodies or the nature around us is also corrupted by sin. And so the, the recovery ability of our bodies is limited by that, um, because it's, you know, sin is, you know, literally in our bones. Um, and so then you get strange things that happen, like, you know, little, <laughs> like pastor Bader's, uh, youngest son out in, um, Thousand Oaks, California, and who's undergoing treatment for some serious cancer. And he's only like two years old. Like, <laughs> it shouldn't be like that, right? Um, let's see, what else? God's providence. Um, in that next, that next paragraph, we talk about God um, also carrying out his providence, um, both immediately and immediately. Um, he writes, it is ultimately to God's providence, his active goodness in his rule over creation, that we owe the dependability of the natural order of things. And then God preserves his creation immediately and immediately. And so most of the time when we hear the term immediately, we think like it's going to happen right now. Um, and immediately is, so when we talk about here, um, we talk about immediately as through means. Um, and immediately is like directly or without means. Um, and so I guess that that's kind of the point of connection between, you know, when we say that something happens immediately, that there's, that there's no delay, there's no mediating force in between. It just happens right away. And so, um, God caring for his creation immediately is God caring for his creation at, according to the laws that he has set up, you know, that the water cycle makes plants grow so that we can eat them and eat the things that eat those plants. Um, God caring for his creation immediately. Um, I guess on an ongoing basis there, you know, aside from his, his general care over the entire world and making sure that, that it continues to operate. Um, but most of what we see is, is how God cares for his creation um, immediately rather than immediately. So what do you think? Agree or disagree? Should we pray for miracles? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So. I think you should always pray at the end of that. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, we pray thy will be done or your, your will be done. Um, and um, there's, it's even in um, the, the seal of the city of Toledo has something about um, to, to work is to speak or something like that um, in, in Latin, because all the good seals are, <laughs> I guess. And, and it kind of draws back on an older um, monastic idea that, you know, that the two things that you do are you pray and you work that they go hand in hand. And so we pray for a miracle. And then we, we, we don't just sit back and say, all right, God, where's my miracle? And we say, all right, what are the things that God has given me to, to take care of and manage today? Um, that, that is the attitude of faith that says, well, maybe God will provide a miracle in his own time, or maybe that miracle will be hidden under, under modern medicine and the marvels that modern medicine um, has, you know, that God graciously provides there. Um, that, you know, maybe miracles happen a lot more often than we realize, um, just that we call it something else. How about this next one? Um, some parents choose not to have their children immunized because it's against their religious beliefs to have a foreign substance injected into their children. How do you respond? And, and I mean, it's only one sentence of, of any sort of context. Yeah, Lois. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a good starting point. That we, um, that we as, as Christians, we recognize the things that God has provided um, through, you know, through the, the, the science that he has allowed to progress. Um, to a particular point. Yeah. You have to wonder what the religious is. I don't think you're going to find anything against that in scripture. No. Because even back in Bible times, they probably took the drug, they concocted medicine back then. Mm -hmm. They just didn't have a way to detect them. Yeah. And, and together with that, um, you know, maybe a, another similar example would be that the Jehovah's Witnesses um, don't they don't want a blood transfusion. Um, I don't know if that's still official doctrine, but, um, but that has, had been, has been their belief for a long time because they believe that you know, God said um, that you should not eat the blood of the animal. And if you're getting a, a blood transfusion from somebody, it's like your body is eating their blood. Um, it might have been the Seventh-day Adventists as well because they're pretty, <laughs> pretty rigid about a lot of those things. Um, and so, yeah, together with that, that we don't know exactly what the religious beliefs are. Um, there are there are some some Christians that that I've you know talked to um, or or you know had discussions with in in other settings. Um, you know, like an online discussion, and somebody reaches out to me, Pastor Hagen. Um, I'm listening to your podcast, and I'm concerned. Um, like with the development of some vaccines that that had used fetal cells in in their development. Um, and then all of a sudden, this person who was a, a new parent was struggling with, okay, timeout, I, I got shots when I was younger, but there were like eight of them. And now we've got a schedule of like 26 shots, um, including these, these shots developed from, from st fetal stem cells. Um, and so, you know, where, where I kind of ended up with, with that discussion was to say that as a Christian, you know, God doesn't command you to to use that to use a vaccine he doesn't forbid you from using a vaccine um you can't you can't pin it on god as as this um as this hypothetical question does about you know having foreign substances in our bodies don't blame that that on god but you can make a rational and reasonable human decision as you as you weigh the options um when you're talking about the medical care for your child or it's like um you know, when it, when a child is born in the hospital, they, they usually want to give the child one of the hepatitis shots. I forget if it's A, B, or C. Um, and, and so the question that new parents often ask, well, okay, what's, what are the risks? What are the benefits? And, and the, the nurse or person giving the explanation usually says something like, well, you don't want your child getting hepatitis. And if somebody with hepatitis holds your child, then, then they might contract hepatitis and could be a very serious thing. And, uh, and then the parents say, well, 
I'm just hanging out with my kid at home and it's like mom, dad, and baby for the next six months. And none of us has hepatitis. So who else is going to be holding my baby? <laughs> I'm not, you know, we don't, and, you know, generally speaking, um, you'll see a lot that a lot of parents don't, don't pass their children around like to be held because they like holding their kids. <laughs> Talking generally, of course, hypothetically, completely, right? Um, and so together with that, um, you know, the, the foreign substance issue is, is something that has no religious basis. Um, but then the, the rest of the discussion as whether you're talking about shots or whether you're talking about blood transfusions um, or whether you're talking about, you know, what, what a person eats or doesn't eat. Um, once we see that those things are a matter of Christian freedom, then it becomes a discussion on, you know, the cost, risk, and reward, and the benefits, or the the possible dangers or hazards, as well as the context in which in which we live, and the people with whom, um, you know, especially our fellow Christians, and and you know all the other questions of Christian freedom that we've kind of touched on with um, our Romans fourteen study. And 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 I will say, you know, as a, as a parent now with some young kids. Um, that the vaccine schedule has accelerated greatly from when I was getting my shots back in the mid eighties, which is, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself. Um, because it can help to you know, reduce the severity of illness and the frequency of illness. And like there's a measles outbreak down in Southern Ohio right now, which isn't a good thing. <laughs> and, um, and, but I, I, I think this is one of those questions that, a lot of our pastors have gotten a lot more often in the last, you know, 20 or 25 years than 40 years ago, because 40 years ago, they didn't have the options that we do now. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the reason this test And it's pretty unique. Research that little bit of history or that little bit of knowledge. Uh, I mean, the polio vaccine, what that thing And it is it is pretty fascinating, um, and and even with the um, the mRNA you know technology based vaccine, like that they've been using that, and they're they're they were in like the end stage of clinical trials for cancer, uh, for some specific types of cancer, and and my concern was you know even before they when they had talked about it, and then and then they started making it available was that this was a very specific application for cancer and it holds a lot, a ton of promise because the te technology is awesome. Um, but then if that is, you know, the way it was rolled out for absolutely everybody, um, the law of unintended consequences says that, you know, at some point, either it's going to be disregarded because it didn't work well enough, or if there's some other effect that uh, that is only going to be visible in a wide population, and then this new technology is blamed for it, and then it, would it would it be shelved um, because of a, a bad experience with the the vaccine? I was I'm not on record for having said that, although I did have a conversation with Michelle Belays about it sometime during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, as much detail as I can give you. Yeah, but but it is one of those things where um, 
where the landscape and the technology advances so quickly that and it shifts so much that you can't you can't have a full conversation about you know the the religious decision making behind it without a you know a brief on all the technology that that is involved in it and so i mean for the most part if some if people have questions about that or if they have a conscience bound reason that they don't want to don't want to get that specific injection um you know i i did give some people a little bit of guidance as to how they would be able to have a religious exemption because they felt it was wrong to be using um, that fetal cell development vaccine, um, which is okay, that's fine, as long as you understand the risks and benefits and, uh, and, and, uh, and your own personal reason and your own personal conscience. I'm not going to tell somebody to go against that. And that is exactly the sort of thing that is protected under under our you know First Amendment rights. Um, like the Hobby Lobby case would be a fantastic choice for for looking at that. Um, that pastorally, you know, we we don't, and you know, this is one of those topics that obviously I completely skipped over when we you know for our discussion of Christian freedom in Romans 14. Let's talk about something a little bit easier like like ham ham sandwiches <laughs> rather than vaccines. Um, but that pastorally, you know, we don't we didn't have a policy or or keep a list or ask people if they were vaccinated or not. We just said we're gonna have this HVAC solution that you know neutralizes viruses and bacteria. And and if you have a personal question about the you know related to your spiritual life and, and any medical treatment, then talk to your pastor. And if you have a question about this vaccine, go talk to your doctor. <laughs> and, and really, I don't, I don't care what you do, um, as long as it's something that you are at peace with, um, according to your own personal conscience. And I want to do my best to inform that conscience. Yeah. IVF, yeah. Yeah, and they take embryo and sperm and they make an egg and then implant it. Mm -hmm. But to do that, I guess they, they like you might have 50 that are Yeah. When, when we talk about, um, talk about in vitro fertilization, um, you know, just as a general principle that generally speaking, the further we get from the way things naturally happen, the, the easier it is to get off track with how we use that process. Um, and, and I'd have to work a little bit to refine that, but that's, that's basically kind of our starting point. So when you talk about IVF, um, in vitro fertilization, the, the two major problems or two major issues um, is that number one, aside, aside from the cost, if a couple is able to bear the cost, then, then, they, then they do. Um, the, the first one is that in order to have fertilized cells available for implanting, um, they start with, you know, I don't know, two dozen, they start with this number that is far and away beyond what would naturally happen according to uh, a woman's normal cycle. Um, and then they, they look at those and try to choose, you know, and selectively reduce the ones that appear to be less viable. And I'm not an, I'm not an expert in this. Um, I do know someone who is, but they, she's not available right now for a phone call. Um, but that, this, is my, this is my understanding, that they selectively reduce um, so that the one who looks like the strongest of the, of the fertilized eggs, fetuses, is going to be the one that would be then hopefully carried to term. Um, and so the first thing is that we believe that life begins at conception and because also sin begins at conception, um, and God doesn't tell us, God tells, God doesn't tell us to worry about cases of miscarriage. Um, and so, you know, this, this topic of IVF is a different one from discussing some talking to somebody who has had a miscarriage, um, 
especially, you know, Christian parents who have had been hoping for this child and then aren't able, for whatever reason, aren't able to carry it to term. That's a different discussion from IVF. Um, and the, the question with IVF is number one, the creation of so many and the, the ending of, of so many. Um, question number two is that sometimes they aren't. And, um, and then these, these tiny, you know, microscopic beings um, in whatever stage of development they happen to be are then put on ice and frozen. Um, so that's even a thing now where you can adopt a frozen embryo and, um, and then carry that, carry that child to term um, in the hopes of, of having your own baby. And um, so th those are the two main things, um, kind of what what the medical world calls POC products of conception, you know, what do you do with all these, all these, um, extra fertilized eggs, babies, and, and fetuses, um, at various stages of development. Um, my growing up, my next door neighbors, um, were members of the same church as us. And they had twin grandchildren who had been conceived through IVF. And the parents had said, well, we've got the money to, to try this, try this once. And as Christians, um, we just want to use one egg and then if it, if it works great. And if it doesn't, okay. And, um, and in that particular case, um, by the instruction of the parents, then they, there was only that, that one egg that was used and fertilized and, and, and miraculously, I'll use that word. Um, it ended up growing into twins, which is, which is cool. And so in that case where they weren't able to conceive, um, they avoided, you know, the, the two major pitfalls of IVF, which would be, you know, the creation and destruction of, of a human life, as well as the creation and then the, you know, storing of a human life. What's, what's the bottom line? Um, that generally it's something to be very cautious about. Um, I don't, I don't have the, the statement before me. I know we've got a couple of different statements on topics like that. Um, and I think, but I think pastorally, it would be something to be very cautious about and in pursuing, especially if you're talking about a, a larger number in the hopes of, you know, you know, the frequency of numbers, and then you have a better chance of success. Um, which, which kind of gets back to where the whole thing starts that the further we get from the natural process, the, the less we see, you know, the miracle of God's, God's work in this. And the more we kind of, to a greater, or lesser degree, elevate man's role in making this happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and there are some, uh, we got a Christmas card from some friends of ours back in Minnesota. Um, they weren't members of our church, but one of our other churches and the wife has, um, been a surrogate mother now two times, which is like IVF, but, um, you know, so it's the, the mother and the father had both viable, you know, cells for creating life. Um, and then that was then implanted into, into her, which carries with it its own, its own boatload of, of ethical decisions to kind of wade through piece by piece. Um, but as with most practical, you know, decisions like that, um, it's really depends on all the, all the basic details that, and, and the details matter, I guess, would be the short answer. <laughs> Deutschlander? Sign their death warrant 
in the beginning, if they're not children. But then on the other hand, we're trying in our decision making to preserve life, to bring life forward. Mm -hmm. And so now we get into that about should we roof the church or not? So should we engage with it? And you know, that decision we make is that is that land on the side of now this kind of decision making that we give us just to over something because we're trying to do something that is in God's will to be fruitful and multiply, but at the same time to be fruitful and multiply, we're also destroying. Mm-hmm. So yeah. We make that decision that says, okay, I won't. God if we say, I'm going to, is God going to? Yeah, I mean, it. When we get to the topic of providence, um, I think there are a number of other considerations that that we would get to before the before even the umbrella term of of God's providence. Um, could God and has God miraculously provided um, a child for families in that way? Um, yes, yes, He could. Yes, He does. Yes, He has, um, and He has also done so, you know, without the aid of medical technology for for a long time. And so when we talk about, um, you know, in vitro fertilization in, in specific, um, I think if we start with the other things first, and then with the understanding that once we, once we see, you know, a proper Christian ethic applied to this procedure, then it may be something that a couple could pursue. Um, but that might cause, that might that might have more involved in it for a Christian couple than for a non-Christian couple. Like if they just use the one um, as that, that couple did that I had known.